Welcome all and thanks for tuning in to the Bad Hombres FC podcast where we talk all things soccer in the DMV. My name is Jose Almanya, sports writer and contributor for the Sports Pulse. And joining me as always is co-host Mario Maya from the Tempo Latino. How are you doing, Mario? <laughs> I am doing all right, you know, kicking back, relaxing while in quarantine. Life is lovely. Glad you feel that way. Before we get started with all the general topics of the day, including the breaking news of MLS and their plans of restarting the league and the Chris Durkin move, we have to start with Jermaine Jones. Now, for those who don't know, dun, dun, dun. yeah, for those who don't know, Jermaine Jones, former U.S. Men's National Team midfielder, uh, is cur- currently not on a team. He is re- officially retired as of a Sports Illustrated article from a month ago. <laughs> but he has a <laughs> podcast a podcast network called 13 and Me. And his second guest... With a D- not to be confused with a DNA website for your ancestry. Exactly. Um, his first guest... Well, his first guest, he got a lot of attention for his first guest, which is Christian Pulisic. And Christian Pulisic, Pulisic describing his first months with Chelsea. But the second one hits close to home. He talks to former DC United striker and U.S. men's national team player, Eddie Johnson. Um, they talk about his move to DC United in 2013. In the after the season of 2013, prior to the 2014 season, they were jumping back and forth in terms of the topics of coaching and development. But when they it, everything shifted once Jermaine Jones talked about his experience coming over to the league uh, with the Chicago and New England situation. At that point, that's when the conversation shifted to Eddie Johnson, DC United move. Uh, quote. Seattle sold my rights for 900k and it and did not want to pay me and give me the money I wanted in Seattle. So the league now owns me. He then proceeded to explain that Bruce Arena, coach of the LA Galaxy at the time, was interested in making a deal for EJ, but quote, the league said you have too many players already there, unquote. EJ then calls Eddie Johnson one day and tells him he is being traded to D.C. He said he would have preferred to stay in the West Coast due to a divorce uh, agreement that was going on. He was dealing with a divorce with his ex-wife. He said, quote, when the league told me no and I had to go to D.C., I was like, are you kidding me? I had said no, so just tell, but they told me where to go. Then EJ and DC United started negotiating. Before we talk about DC United negotiating with uh, Eddie, Eddie Johnson, Mario, what are your thoughts so far on this development and the way EJ is characterizing his move from D, from Seattle to DC? Uh, to quote the great Kevin Hart, he was most likely like, no, no, I wasn't ready. So... This is so interesting at the fact that we and we looked this up earlier prior to the podcast. LA had an extra DP slot available. They only had two DPs prior to the 2014 season, which were Landon Donovan and Robbie Keane. It would have made sense. And also begs the question: there is a players union. You could have gone to them to see to see what you could work out and find a middle ground if you didn't want to come to DC. Right, and I did some research in terms of like 
after the 2013 season, which on record was the worst season that any MLS club had, had ever had. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mario. Three wins. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Three wins and a total of 13 points. And for some reason, I still ask myself, how on earth did they win the U.S. Open Cup that year? So after that season, United cleared a lot of cap space. Uh, they released uh, several veterans, including Dwayne Dorosario. Um, and they also received money for having the worst record in the league, but also qualifying for the CONCACAF Champions League after they won the U.S. Open Cup. Don't ask us how that happened. Anywho. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's called MLS. <laughs> so at the time, and I looked it up, uh, the Washington Post did a good job of detailing who was up for EJ. It was Chivas USA, the Galaxy, and DC United. And Kenny Cooper had said to the media, EJ's not coming back. So Seattle, the moment the season was over, they had already said, we're cutting ties with EJ. Now this, uh, I guess they already had told EJ. I don't know. The way he describes it is kind of like, yeah, they told me they're not going to purchase, they're not going to have me anymore. And the league owns me. That's where it kind of gets iffy. And then... The way the Galaxy were told, no, you have too many players. It just muddles everything. It makes some, and you kind of bring up the 2DP situation, but it kind of muddles everything. Back then, you know, a lot of people knew how salary cap worked in MLS. There, there was only DP and you were a regular player. And the DP took 500K out for your salary cap. So if, if EJ was saying, that he had to be a DP for the Galaxy, they already had so many players that their salary cap was tapped. They would have to essentially give away a player like a Juninho to make it work, and I don't think Bruce was going to do that. No, not at all, especially considering that Juninho was one of the was one of the main centerpieces of the LA Galaxy's midfield at the time. So it wouldn't have made sense to trade to get a package for allocation money and Juninho to get Eddie Johnson per se. Now, I think what I find interesting about all this is that one Chivas USA was in the running. And <laughs> I think that would have made sense at the time. <laughs> Rest in peace, Chivas USA. Um, but it would have made sense at the time. Cause I feel like they had a lot more cap space to play with. And considering that he was going through a divorce at the time. And he also mentioned he wanted to stay in the West coast and be closer to his kids. So it would have worked out. Now, with, with that with that situation, and especially considering at that time in MLS, there's a lot of like high profile players that were constantly touted to go to Los Angeles. So him trying to get to to out to the LA Galaxy at the time would have made sense, but but it would have cost him a lot more than to get EJ at to get EJ and try to shed some salary cap all at the same time. So it was a lot of manu- it would have been a lot of maneuvering from LA in LA spa from LA's part. Right. And you know, commissioner, I mean commissioner, but actually just to give you an idea of what EJ and um Jermaine Jones are talking about, Jermaine Jones is talking about how the league always likes to make certain moves happen. And he said for example with his deal with Chicago and New England, 
the allocation order had New England. Chicago would have been after New England. But it was Chicago that initiated the deal. They did not expect New England to be like, we're next and we want Jermaine Jones. And so Jermaine Jones was under the understanding he was going to Chicago, but ends up having to be forced to go to New England. In this case with Eddie Johnson, because Seattle didn't want him and his contract hadn't expired yet, he still had a one-year deal, apparently. He had one year left in his deal. They had no choice but to either cut him or sell him. And so they sold him in the MLS way possible. I say that in quotation marks because they're selling within the league. And here's where EJ brings up the contract situation. United reportedly paid 900k in allocation funding. EJ says, "Quote: If you value me at nine hundred thousand dollars, then pay me that in this year." But they ended up giving me six hundred thirty-five thousand a year at a time where I'm playing my best football. EJ was prepared to hold out his DC United contract after the trade which would have been a great talking point right after your worst season. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so apparently uh, his agency, WMG, called apparently a friend of Eddie Johnson's former MLS player and USM national team star, star Leasley, uh Corey Gibbs, and he told EJ... <laughs> To uh, he said, your roster spot for the 2014 World Cup is not guaranteed. EJ was like, "Come on, man!" But he's like, "No, you gotta think in case something stupid happens, and you don't get called up." EJ listened, and he actually signed the deal, and there were no problems at that point after the deal was made. And he said that it was the quote best advice Corey has ever given me unquote. Now learning this, <laughs> one Dave Casper, bless his heart. <laughs> I don't know how he deals with these characters from time to time basis. Uh, bless his heart. But number two, I gotta have to say EJ has a point in terms of his value, but he had no choice. The way MLS had everything structured, it was less player friendly. As you recall, Mario, right before that, uh, there, I believe it was, it was not 2013 or it was the 2014 season. Everybody wasn't sure the season was going to happen because of the labor dispute and the labor situation. And the players' union ended up getting free agency after this. And it was some form of free agency. And EJ would have been a part of that. But uh, what are your thoughts on how United went with this, according to Eddie Johnson? And how do you look back now at his 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 first year with DC United? Um, so the play the uh, player dispute you speak of is the season after 2014, so it's part of the 2015 season, right? And they got it, and they got it done. I want to say a week or a couple days before the season started. So, so yeah. God bless Corey Gibbs for giving him some sound advice at the time. Because when you hear all this for the first time, it's like, wow, this is insane. This man was really, literally about to hold out 
they're not playing in a World Cup year, which is a World Cup he eventually didn't end up making. He didn't make the, the final 23 for Jurgen Klinsmann going to Brazil that summer, but he was prepared to hold out because he didn't want to be in D.C. How Dave Casper handled the situation, bless his heart, because <laughs> if you're any other kind of general manager, you're just like, all right, screw it. You don't want to play here? Fine, then we'll we'll hold out until one of you cave. But I'm pretty sure Dave Casper had some form of convincing Eddie Johnson going, hey, listen, I know you want to be paid 900000 but we're going to offer you what could be the max amount out of that out of those 900,000 which was 600,000 plus and you know you're going to have a starting role on this team you're coming you he's kind of coming in as the star because Eddie Johnson was a U, a fixture on the US men's national team leading up to that world cup qualifier Eddie had two solid seasons in Seattle so it made sense and I also understand where Eddie Johnson's coming from. I want to be paid top dollar. But how the league worked at the time, it wasn't so simple. And it was, and it just didn't work that way. So, all in all, I find this whole thing fascinating. And it also explains a lot because he was pretty disgruntled in some aspects in his time here. And he also he also was disgruntled with the fan base as well because the fan because ba- I remember the fan base clearly got got it in with him all got in his face about stuff all the time certain sections of the fan base so hearing all this now it just makes sense. EJ's known to be a colorful player, and his entire career he was always outspoken. And that I as a as a reporter and a fan even. You appreciate that. But at the same time, now that he's retired, he sees the things that were like a business. And they kind of, for those who are interested in some of the inner workings of Woven's like conspiracy theory type things that have been proven true or still haven't been proven true, this is the podcast for you. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just, there's just a lot of talking about. The league was in cahoots in terms of the New England deal. Yes, I think everybody looking back at the New England deal, everybody thought New England didn't was gonna skip over uh, Jermaine Jones, so because they were cheap back then, and so they, no one thought they're oh, still they're cheap gonna... now. <laughs> so nobody thought that they would <laughs> screw Chicago over because Chicago had set up the team to plug in that hole. And so in terms of DC United's case, you know, Dave Casper, he mentioned you just don't – when you have the opportunity to sign a guy like this, you just don't pass up on the opportunity. And and that's what he told the Post, and that's what he told MLS Soccer. And I agree. If you have the chance, go for it. Now, Eddie Johnson is learning Soccer 101 in terms of business. You, we can talk about Europe not acting that way, but guess what? They do act that way. And, and that's one thing I do want to say about this podcast. If you go in there with your eyes wide open and you're like, wow, MLS is a, a shark and blah, blah, blah. Europe acts the same way. Mexico acts the same way. If they can sell you, they'll sell you. And and in this case, and, you know, it, go, it makes me think back, and me and you, Mario, we talked about 
this survey, the Athletic did a survey about what the te- what do fans want to see more of, and they want more transaction transparency. How much allocation does each team have? How much? How big is the salary cap? How much is each team getting in terms of a trade? Little things have been released, but if the fans want more. And this is one of those situations where if you were a fan back then, this is why you asked for more transparency. Has the league gotten better at it? 10% better. Can it get way better? Yes, they have 90% to go in terms of how much better they can be in terms of releasing figures and numbers in terms of these contracts and how players feel about the market it is working in. Right. And to point back to what, to what you said that Europe, Europe does the same thing and Mexico does the same thing. Uh, it brings back that in Mexico, they have this thing called El Pacto de Caballeros, a gentleman's pact where they, if one team owns the rights to a player, they can sell you wherever you please. And this has been the case for some Mexican pl- national team players that have come back from Europe. And so there that, is that, no, it's kind there of, is no national team allocation order, essentially. It's wherever we want to sell. National team sell. Al- right. I mean, I, teams that have benefited from this in Mexico, in particular, Tigres has done it in the past uh, with Carlos Salcido. And then Leon did uh, benefited from this in a way in 2013 when they got Rafa Marquez, when he came back from the Red Bulls. So it's somewhat of a similar situation, but yeah, MLS has gotten better when it comes to transparency to some of these moves, but there's always room to improve. Right. I guess we'll just cap off at this. I think listening to this a little, EJ admits, like, if it wasn't for Corey Gibbs, who knows what would have happened in terms of his deal. DC may have just reneged on the deal, and he could have been a free agent somewhere. Um, But... You know, EJ was able to get his money. He got 635K that season, and he was then diagnosed with a heart ailment. And he was able to say, hey, I got my money, you know, right before he had to retire. And so, you know, kind of, I think we all deserve to give Corey Gibbs a shot next time, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I'll I'll buy him a beer the next time I see him if he ever comes to DC. (laughs) But what I find find interesting about his, uh, how EJ's time ended here was we didn't know about the heart ailment until we nearly killed him for a practice prior to the return leg of a playoff game against the New York Red Bulls. Right, and and it makes you think back even more. Like this, even more confirms to me. If you want to talk about conspiracy theories, that Seattle knew about the heart ailment. But I digress. We'll move on. <laughs> we'll move on to uh, a lighter topic, quote unquote lighter. Uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, MLS has now. Oh. Um, Washington Post and The Athletic both report plans that MLS plans to restart their season and I say season loosely in Orlando, Florida according to both publications the league has proposed two players of all 26 teams to head to the Orlando area this summer to play competitive matches that would be in a tournament style with round robin and group stage play that guarantees that everybody would play. They would be playing these games at the Disney 
why world of sports uh, complex inside the Walt Disney Resort and teams would be living on the certain hotels in the resort area. It would happen for two months. Mario, what are your thoughts on this proposal? So I have a question. Does the the losing team, whoever loses, do they have to ride the teacups afterward as punishment? It's either going to be the teacups or cars. It could be one of the two. (laughs) (laughs) Or test drive. Excuse me. Test drive. Test drive. (laughs) Or you could get lost at Epcot. One of the three is going to happen. I find it fascinating that they're like, hey, listen, everybody come down to Orlando. We're going to start the the season loosely down there. It's interesting. I find I find it interesting especially considering that there you can play in inside the Walt Disney Resort in the in the wide world of sports uh, uh complex, meaning that there's multiple fields, so you could kind of pull this off. Uh originally I I think we discussed it last week that it was possible we could have played this in two states and have a kind of like a tournament. Mm-hmm. But considering that right now in Florida, being an athlete is an essential, uh, essential, uh, essential job, or you're an essential worker uh, in all <laughs> case, all case and purposes. I guess it's a good idea for just to have them, you know, in Orlando and having said tournament because you'll have, you'll be in a set in a set location and you don't have to really go anywhere. Right, and just to give people an idea, the Disney owned. ESPN Wild World of Sports Complex is essentially one of these sporting complexes that host AAU games, that host a lot of kid tournaments and, and travel team tournaments. It has it's a 220-acre athletic complex. It has 17 fields that are considered for use for soccer. Four of those fields are shared with a baseball pitch, but that's nothing new if you're the New England, the New York City FC. So that's their home field. But outside of that, <laughs> outside of that, I could totally see those four pitches being designated as practice pitches. The rest of them, there are two specific pitches I'm looking at in terms of making sure that you have locker room access and things like that. So you have there's two pitches right beside the stadium, which was once used by the Atlanta Braves for their preseason games, and the other and there's two other fields right next to the HP Fieldhouse, which is where they host basketball and gymnastics and things like that. And they have very nice uh, locker room settings for the team. So in terms of having the the area in places where they can play. It's a plus. The one downside, I think, is making sure the players are okay with this. The plan says that they would have to start playing games uh, June 22nd, but start going down there June 1st, and then play until the end of July. And so you're asking, essentially, these players to be away from their families for two months. They will not be allowed to be a part of this. Um, if they can guarantee testing for these players and the players are okay with it, I'm okay with it. Yeah, same here. I mean, because first and foremost, especially in these times, uh, player safety and anybody's safety in general is priority. Mm-hmm. So if you have a set plan together for all of this and you could guarantee player safety and if players are on board, then I see why there should be no reason for this 
for this to, for them to start playing in Orlando. And heck, uh, the governor of Florida came out today and said, you can use our stadiums. So I could see a situation if they want to. Uh, it could be a situation where these MLS teams elect to, and MLS may elect to use uh, Orlando City Stadium as well as Camping World Stadium if, it's, if they're both still available to host maybe your two games that would be on the one that would have been on Fox, for example, or the one that would have been on Univision or the one that would have been on, uh, on uh, ESPN, you would have a stadium setting and then they would guarantee easier access to record these games. Um, I'm just thinking of the logistics. One concern, I, I follow UFC. It's what we kind of mentioned about testing. When will these players get tested? Because right now, some of them are working out currently in, in, in separate trainings in their team facilities, but there hasn't been any word in terms of testing. And I feel that if you're going to do this, you have to test them before you leave. If someone is sick, you leave them behind, but that you have to test everyone before you leave and after you arrive, and then going forward, have a schedule um, in terms of how you would do testing. Uh, UFC had a fighter who arrived to their facilities in Jacksonville already with the virus. So you want to avoid that as much as possible uh, because if you are bringing all 26 teams in, the, the likelihood that you can affect someone else would be astronomical if you're bringing everybody into one area. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and it just pretty much, just like the UFC fighter, he did. He pretty much admitted that he had the coronavirus right. when he got there. So you want to avoid that kind of a situation. And it sounds like a PR nightmare, but UFC was pretty good at handling the situation for the most part. But yeah, you got to find some form of testing, especially before they get there. And also once they get to Orlando, because I am pretty sure that social distancing at this point would be slim to none. So you got to guarantee safe, like safe, the safety of the players first. Finally, it's just something that we're not out of the woods yet. So you got to take every precaution uh, possible. Right. What are your thoughts on the format itself? That they kind of want to do a group stage you know, situation where they guarantee everybody plays the same amount of games. It's going to be a tournament. They haven't decided what the prize will be. Um, but what are your thoughts on what it – me personally, the prize should be the quote-unquote supporter shield because when you come back for the regular season, everybody's just going to be amped for playoffs. There is no point at that point to see who has the best record in the league. I think you just call this the supporter shield for tournament and just – have it battle out for the supporter shield there. That's just my personal opinion. But what are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts on the tournament format, it, it, it's good because you're going to, if you're playing it from June 22nd till the end of July, it just makes sense to make it a, make it a tournament. I'm with you on let's play for the supporter shield. That should be the prize because everybody will be in for playoffs. And if you want to add an extra prize in there, everybody, the winning team, everybody gets their own set of Mickey uh, Mouse ears. Or, you know, everybody gets to go to Universal Studios. It's one, the first one will get to go to Universal <laughs> Studios. That may be, 
because who knows how tired they'll be of seeing Mickey Mouse here. Um, but yeah, um, we'll see where it goes from here. This is the second leak that's been offered the the wide world of sports area. Um, so it's interesting that MLS seems like they're ready to do this, but they just need approval from the players. Uh, the NBA was offered it before, but there was no response. So it would be good to see, it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. Absolutely. And also, I think I think MLS is just ready to get back in action. I think that's why they they most likely proposed playing this whole tournament in Orlando. So it would be pretty cool to see how how this moves forward. And if you're Atlanta, you're chopping at the bit because you're going to your home away from home. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's uh, stay in MLS real quick, but make it local. DC United's already making moves and waves in for the transfer market. First, they make the move official. Chris Durkin officially going to Europe to stay with Saint Trudeau-Sen, uh from Belgium. One point one million is the reported figure, while United will retain twenty five percent of future transfer fee. Of the future transfer fee that the team that the Belgian club receives if they sell uh, Durkin, um, the club said, "quote We thank Chris for his starting his career at United. Which wish him well with his goals and dreams of a career in Europe." What are your thoughts quickly on the move, and was it a good deal, regardless of the fact that United didn't get the two million upfront they asked for? Well, uh, in all, I think the, the move's good because he, he's been getting playing time, something he wouldn't get if he returned to DC. So, in the in the retrospect, in the respects of hit of him developing a lot more as a player, it's a it's a good move because he's going to be in a bigger uh, bigger platform, which is Europe European soccer and especially the Belgian league, which is considered a trampoline league, it, if you want to call it that, to a bigger to for them to move to a bigger league or a bigger club it's a good move uh for dc in the financial aspect i think that the 1.1 figure is a pretty good figure all things considering even though it's lower than the two million that they asked for but it's not astronomically lower than to say that they got less than a million for durkin they got they got some. They got a pretty good value out of the whole out of the whole uh, deal. The key figure to look at is the twenty five percent for the transfer fee and where they get that from. You know, they had a similar figure for the Andy Nahar deal, um, and Anderlecht ended up keeping Nahar the entire time. But the the hope is that you know, like you said, that this club sells Chris. And that they get more for him. For example, if they sell him for four million, United's going to get a million back. You know, that's just how funny math works. And and they'll basically make more than what they expected. And so, I think overall, while it wasn't the hard two million they had negotiated, the percentage of twenty five when they sell Dirk is really really good. And the hope is that he continues improving. He already had scored a goal. And he's played several games before the coronavirus. And so hopefully he continues that upward trajectory. And whether he gets moved up to a top Belgian side or another top European team or a European side that wants the help and are willing to pay for it. I think at the end, United may end up benefiting. The kid is 20 years old. 
uh, and he's got a lot of upside. And if he continues to get called up something the national team, it would only be- benefit United and benefit Durkin. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It'll benefit them in the long run, especially considering that they're getting 25% of whatever St. Trude- Trudeau makes out of the whole, out of the whole move. So I say, yeah, I think everybody ends up winning in, in this situation. Durkin wins because he'll get more playing time and he gets more exposure in, playing in Europe. DC United wins because they will get they get some they get a financial they get better more they're gonna have a more financial uh, financial reward in the long run with the twenty five percent of whatever of whatever uh, transfer fees come their come the Belgian club's way. So it's a win win situation all all things considering. Yeah, and this kind of goes into the, the next part of this topic is Dave Casper, that name pops up again. Um, he, he mentioned right after the deal was made that United's prepared to go all out in terms of the off-seat, the, uh, the next transfer market when it opens, currently still slated to open in August. Um, he said, quote, um, you, you have your list, the positions you're looking for and all the variety of options out there. We have a big database. Things change, but you always want to be prepared and in tune with the market. He said United has to be prepared and that they're willing to go out and scout as well with video scouting and etc. United had been trying to bring in uh, former U.S. men's national team striker Bobby Wood before the start of the season, who currently plays in Germany. However, the black and red were not able to sign him before the season began. There looked to be some conversations of bringing him mid-season. However, according to Stephen Goff for the Washington Post, that deal is off at the moment. What are your thoughts of Casper still focusing on bringing in more players if there is a transfer window and just being prepared in general? Uh, I think it's good because like this team, this team this season, I think lacks a little bit of depth. So, you know, you get he. It's a good thing that you're looking to look to plug those holes that you have, in particular, in the strike in in the uh, striker position because you only have two strikers, which are Ola Ola Kamara and Eric Sorga. So, you know, you you have a sense of what you're looking for. And you're better prepared, per, better prepared going into the transfer market if it happens in August. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm glad that he's being prepared. But I think with the recent developments of COVID-19 and the things that have happened at the club, for those who don't know, um, in terms of inside the offices, people have been furloughed. People have been let go. Uh, the club had to file for a. Uh, paper check protection program alone that was part of the uh, stimulus package that was released for individuals in the United States as well as small businesses. That was originally intended for small businesses, and yet the Lakers got one, but they ended up returning it. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, one of the bigger restaurant chains in the United States, you had Ruth Crisp also get one. Uh, Shake Shack, that's what I was thinking of. Shake Shack got one, and a really big one too, I think a $20 million loan. And I know United got the loan, the 
the athletic is reporting that they have the loan. It was up to a million dollars. The loan is to help pay for employees. And the fact that United has to get a loan from the government and then also they're furloughing employees. They're giving their part-time employees food donations because they can't pay them. And then Andy Bush, who was working part-time, their CFO, he just resigned. Uh, uh, several full-time employees just been told they've been let go. There's a lot of changes at the club that says they're cash-strapped. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Mario, there was something that came out recently about Segra Field. Um, yeah. So they're look. Let me pull that up real quick. But it's essentially going back to the whole furlough thing. Yeah, they're gonna. They're definitely cash strapped altogether. So they're gonna be cash strapped. So it's gonna be interesting to see how this uh play, how this plays out. While you look for that real quick, essentially what I'm trying to say is the optics don't look good in terms of oh we're ready to make any pickups necessary. And um, well, I found yeah. it. So. Right now, D.C. United and Lown United, according to Steve Goff, it, uh, this was tweeted out by Steve Goff earlier, they're looking to receive deferments on Segra Field rent. Yeah, and I think it was the Watch It Business Journal who did the story. Um, essentially, they went to the Loudoun County uh, uh, board meeting asking for deferments, and they're going to vote on it, but it looks like they're going to get approval on that due to the COVID-19 situation. Um this would so, be yeah. So, according to the article, the committee of the Loudoun County Board voted four to one Tuesday evening in favor of deferring, while deferring Loudoun, well, to particular Loudoun United payments for the for the stadium. Uh, the deferments are totaling around six thousand twenty one dollars, around six hundred thousand dollars to round it out exactly. Okay, so six hundred k. Six hundred k. Yeah, six hundred k in low in in payments in rental payments. That's a that's a deep. You're crossing TAM money, and you're saying that you have your GM out here basically saying, "But yeah, we're we're ready to go." And the optics doesn't look right when you can't even pay for your field. You can't pay for full time staff. Can't pay for the part time staff you have. Like it's it's a bad look. I would say be careful. Like. This is not the time to go get that DP striker that was rumored in the offseason. This is the time where you get the you get players that plug up the holes, but this is where Dave Casper you normally makes his money. Get those cheap but worthy investments that can help the team um, during this this year, and then maybe next year you focus on bringing that huge DP in. Um, that big signing, but I just wouldn't recommend they do that this offseason. I mean, this upcoming transfer window. Yeah, no. I think this is also uh, something that you wouldn't recommend for most MLS teams because they're all, they're all feeling the pinch of the coronavirus right now, and it's taking a big toll on, on the economy in general. Now, let's just be fans for one quick second. <laughs> if you can it's, it's if coronavirus wasn't the situation it is what do you think the move should be and who would you go get uh so for me personally the move would be a forward uh i think i think they definitely need to plug up those striker holes 
And if you want to go for a big money move, uh, me personally, I would go for Diego Costa from Atletico Madrid. Um, he's an excellent forward that has a great that has had that had great goal scoring seasons in particular 2014. But he's also a guy that's willing to uh, drop back and defend, and he's done that really well. And he's been able to thrive. He thrived a couple of seasons in Chelsea under Antonio Conte. And he also has thrived under the Diego Simeone system. So he'd be a perfect fit in a way for a bit for DC United and Ben Olsen. Right. Yeah, they really need to stay for three years. Even when Rooney was here, we always wanted him to have that strike partner with him. Someone that he could trust, someone that he could have right next to him. Um, me personally, um, I'm very torn in what I want United to do. I do think they need to focus on the back. Um, you know, players like Dario Benedetto, who played for Boca, I think, who now plays for Marseille. I think if he if he continues, he's currently had a decent run so far, but he felt like he wanted to come stateside and the right offers made. He's 29. I would love to see DC and I get a guy like that who's a great goal poacher and who would make a difference. And I think that's what United thought Ola Kumar would be, that guy that just is accurate all the time and poaches goals whenever possible. And so far he hasn't been that. So I would be interested to see where United goes from here. But like I said, I think Dave Casper needs to be cheap but smart in terms of his moves going forward. Absolutely, and if we were also going on just a striker that's an absolute goal poacher, Carlos Tevez also fits this mold. He, he's de- he's definitely showed it throughout his whole career, and he's still showing it now at Boca Juniors, even in his 30s. So that would also be a that also would have been a move that made sense for DC United. Uh, going on forward with the situation we have now, I would say if you want to look for a cheap striker, but someone that's effective. I would definitely look within the league, for, uh, certainly. Yeah, and I would, you know, Dave has done well at the Super Drafts and finding those rare gems that aren't getting playing time. I, I, I'm i interested to see what he does in terms of that. And also, if MLS will allow trades during this tournament, it would be interesting if we have some similar 96 stories come out, you know, one day you're at the 90s pop <laughs> resort for the Columbus crew and all of a sudden you're being asked to go, you know, go to the Days Inn where DC 9 is located. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> but it would be interesting <laughs> if that kind of stuff happens. It would be a small world if Dom Dwyer got traded to DC United while everybody's in Orlando. <laughs> I'm staying away from that. <laughs> but <laughs> speaking of, <laughs> speaking of um, the final topic of the day, you kind of mentioned that you really wanted to talk about this, so I may defer a little bit to you. But for the first time ever, the U.S. women's national team, uh, specifically the 99ers, uh, who won the 1999 Women's World Cup, will have a feature-length film uh, according to Variety, Netflix has uh, purchased the rights to the book The Girls of Summer, the U.S. Women's National Team and How It Changed the World, and will detail the 10-year journey of winning this World Cup 
um, in a in a film. Uh, they have the direct. They've already announced who they they have the uh, Lisa Channing uh, Tesson, who worked on Mary Queen of Scots and The Darkest Hour. She'll produce it, and they've already secured the rights to nine of the players who will probably be the main protagonists of the story. Julie Foudy, Mia Hamm, Shell Akers, Joey, Joy Fawcett, Christine Lilly, Brianna Scurry, Carla or Overbeck, and Brandy Chastain. No release date or cast has been announced. So Mario, what are your thoughts on this? Are you excited for this? Why do you want this? Uh, I'm personally excited for this. Because mainly, this is the team that Pyatt just kind of paved the way for what women's soccer is in this country altogether. The 99ers. Um, this, uh, I remember as a kid when the Women's World Cup was hosted here in 1999. Just the, how everybody was excited and just gravitated to this team. Mm-hmm. Especially have, like having sets, uh, just main stars from this team, such as Mia, ha- Mia Hamm, J- Judy Foudy, uh, M- Michelle Akers. And, and I'm fascinated to see how they got to that point because they did win the first ever Women's World Cup in 1991 in China. They brought, they went through a lot of hurdles to get to that point, and it leads to, to, leads to having a women's league established a year later thanks to, thanks to the momentum that was carried out of that team. And it also paved the way for for what you for the for women's national for what the women's national team and what it is today. Yeah, I mean, for the fact that this is going to be a feature length film and it's not a documentary. There have been two documentaries. HBO had Dare to Dream. ESPN did a Thirty for Thirty as part of uh, called as part of their Nine for Nine series called the Ninety Niners. Um, and that one had like secret footage that Julie Foudy had been recording the entire time. I'm just curious. I guess this film isn't for me per se. I'm more of a documentary person. I like to know what new things are going to be unearthed and things of that nature. But I think the feature length film is a good idea for, like you said, yourself and others who want to the nostalgia, you know, feel and see how Hollywood tells that story but i think it's also good for the younger generation who wasn't around like you said we grew up watching that i can recall watching those pks and watching you know um that moment when uh brandy chastain scored in front of over ninety thousand people in attendance and um it would be great for the younger generation to see yeah you had your heroes but these were our heroes and they were essentially what brought the the new version in today of the women's national team they were the original dynasty in terms of women's soccer in the world so it would be great to have their stories highlighted um and i'm curious to see how they tell the stories of the individual players you know for those who don't know probably haven't noticed you know michelle Akers was probably the best player until mia ham said excuse me and <laughs> decided to show her goal scoring prowess but michelle Akers kind of gets overlooked in that 99 world cup but she basically played on one leg and so it would Ex- be good Ex- to just highlight yeah, actually, the also players. she was the she was great right and she was also the general on of that midfield 
Right. So she made ev- everything float around Michelle Akers. So Michelle Akers is just one of those players that doesn't get the recognition that she deserves. Mm-hmm. And she, hands down, is one of the best players that this country's ever produced all time. Male or female, in my opinion. Um, where do you, you know, is there anything you hope to see in terms of, like, casting or what do you hope they highlight in terms of what you remember from that 99 World Cup or the journey? I just spoke about Michelle Akers, but is there anything you're looking forward to? Hmm. I'm interested to see who they cast for these roles. Uh, that, that's definitely something I'll keep an eye for. Uh, but I'm also just interested to see how they highlight this journey, how they, if they take any direction from the two documentaries that they from HBO and ESPN, see if they incorporate any of what any of, of the things that were highlighted there, if they highlight it in this feature film. But I just want I'm interested to see how they document the journey in general. I'm holding up for those who can't see, and Mario's probably gonna peek down now and see it. I'm holding up an ESPN magazine because I just I'm telling you now, I don't know why, but it, when it comes to these new athletic films. Ever since Allison Bree did Glow, they keep calling Allison Bree to do these things. And I just expect them to call Allison Bree. I like her. I'll be honest. I like her. <laughs> <laughs> I like community. I'm personally looking forward for Issa Rae to play Brianna Skirn for some reason. But that, just, that would definitely. <laughs> I'm just, I, I, I don't know. Something tells me Allison Bree's getting a call. But <laughs> before I let you go, Mario, just. <laughs> Just the, you know, wind down of this crazy day of news and getting this 99, you know, the 99ers getting their own feature film. What's your favorite soccer movie? Oh, damn. That's kind of hard. Um, I'm going to have to say uh, The Big Green. It's a Disney movie. It's a Disney movie that came out in the 90s. I thought it was a pretty cool story. Uh, if I remember the plot of the movie correctly. It's it's this Brit, it's this British professor that moves to teach at a in a school in a small town of te- in Texas, and forms a forms a, a soccer team with just a ragtag cast of characters, and they go on to compete in a league in Austin and they win the whole thing in the end. I think it's just fascinating, but also I'm good. I like comedy, so that. That also helps why it's one of my favorite soccer movies of all time. But a close second is also Bend It Like Beckham. Bend It Like Beckham is good. I don't care what anybody says. Um, <laughs> maybe you remember the name of this film. Was it was it the two brothers or was it named something else? It was a 30 for 30 about the Colombian national team. And oh, also, the two Escobars. The two Escobars. Like I said earlier, I'm a documentary nerd. Um, the two Escobars is probably the greatest thirty for thirty ever made. I don't. We can argue. Oh, outside the OJ series, I'm just, <laughs> outside <laughs> the OJ series, uh, it's the greatest. For the last dance now, but yeah, it's the greatest thirty for thirty ever made, in my opinion. There's just no doubt about it, and the story, the right. way it's detailed. Oh yeah, absolutely, because it details what soccer was like in Colombia in the 80s and how it tried to the drug trade. It's just, it's fat. It's fantastic. And I just I feel like another. It, right. I just felt like it didn't pull punches. 
in terms of, you know, the subject matter. And they just told the story. Uh, fun fact, Popeye, the guy who ends up snitching on everybody, he just died recently. So it's just it's just it's just a fascinating tale for those who have never seen it. And since you pulled the day the Bended Light Beckham, I'm a huge snub in terms of I love gold. I don't care what anybody says. I love gold. <laughs> gold is better. Look. I do watch Kicking and Screaming for a certain somebody who's watched, who may be listening. Yes, I do watch Kicking and Screaming, and I like it, but nothing beats Gold. And I'm talking about Gold 1, not the retro, that terrible version of Gold 2, and certainly not horrend, that horrendous version of Gold 3. <laughs> uh, gold 1's excellent. I, I, I'm going I'm to be honest with you. I, I love the fact that he goes from the streets of Los Angeles to Newcastle. Goal two, it's eh, it's okay. Goal three is terrible. I'll agree with you there. But uh, the one thing I love about goal one is that Zinedine Zidane and David Beckham are having a drink at a bar in Newcastle. That is possible. That is very cool, but also the most random location to go get a beer when you play in Madrid. <laughs> when you play in Madrid, who says, you know what, let's go to Newcastle. But I digress. Mario, tell the people where they can find you. <laughs> All right. So you can find me on Twitter at MarioMaya1. You can also find me at El Tiempo. You can also find my articles on El Tiempo Latino. You can follow them on Twitter at El Tiempo Latino and at El Tiempo Latino.com. And wherever you get your newspapers, right? it could be at a store or right in front of your local metro station. For everybody else, thank you for tuning in to the Bad Hombres FC podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Jose underscore M underscore Mania for more content and more information. Special shout out once again to Kevin McCloyd and Incompetech for the new uh, intro and outro music. Remember, please rate and subscribe to Anchor, Spotify, and all your audio platforms for this podcast. Once again, thank you for tuning in. We had a lot of content this week. Thanks, Eddie Johnson. Thank you, Jermaine Jones. <laughs> and, and for everybody else, thank you for tuning in. Talk to you soon. Peace. <laughs>